Testing, testing. Hey, Justin here with Stay at Home Dad's podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome to this place where I talk about a lot of different things that go on here in my Stay at Home Dad life. Things with my kids, things with my family, my spouse, ways to be a better father and a better husband. I also talk about men's mental and physical wellness. I talk about parenting struggles that I have, success stories as well, parenting tips, life tips, other things that I come across in my daily life and things I find online and in books. Lastly, I talk about just random things that pop into my head and make me kind of pause and think about. I uh, come on here and I talk about it with you. So I hope something in there is educational or entertaining or at least thought-provoking to some degree. But thank you for tuning in with me today. Thank you for taking time out of your day to join me here. So if you couldn't tell, my voice sounds like hell. Um, I'm getting over a cold or I'm in the middle of a cold. I don't really know, but it went through my whole house and my whole family's got it. So hopefully I can uh, make this really raspy voice last for about 20 to 30 minutes and uh, get this show, you know, recorded. So hopefully it doesn't fail on me. I got some tea here and uh, we'll just see what happens. So on today's show, I want to get into the relationship of trust, dad's trust with their kids and vice versa, and maybe even add a little spousal element in there if I've got some time. But first, one of those random things that I was thinking about, I'm going to tell you about. I get a little story for you here. I want to give you something to kind of ponder. I've been reading this book. Well, it's an audio book, and it's called Where Good Ideas Come From, by Steven Johnson. It's been decent. Parts of it are kind of slow for me. It gets pretty deep, but uh, still pretty interesting. It's mainly about the history of successful innovation and, like the title says, where good ideas come from and actually where they don't come from as well. The book also talks about questions for finding good ideas, which actually maybe I'll do an episode on in the future at some point when I'm done reading this book. But I came across this one chapter, and they talk about how the internet, although efficient, doesn't really give that same feeling of physically looking through things, you know, like you would get from going to a library or a bookstore or something like that. Essentially looking at something and then being surprised at what you find, even though it wasn't the actual thing that you were looking for. They say that's one of life's great pleasures, is stumbling across things like that. Then they talk to uh, New York Times tech editor Damon Darlin, and he says that the digital age is stamping out serendipity. And what is serendipity, you may ask? I know we've heard it a lot. Maybe we don't exactly know what it is. Well, that just means good things happening, events or moments or findings by chance in a happy or beneficial way. That's what serendipity means. And he says that the digital age is creating an environment where we no longer come across those things in exciting ways. We never come across something by chance anymore. Or at least it's a lot less frequent, in part to the vast amounts of information that comes through us through our phones and social media. He said that type of information that comes through us in that digital form, you know, on social media, doesn't really count as serendipitous. He says it's more like groupthink because it's filtered, it's vetted, it's tailored to us. 
through algorithms, through knowing what we like to read, through knowing what we like to see. And that makes total sense. And I just thought this was kind of an interesting perspective. I'd never really thought of it that way before. And I can see it. It's like being in an echo chamber. More influence from people and things that we already like to see and less thinking independently or less stumbling across those things or ideas that we normally wouldn't because we're always surrounded by stuff that's been cherry-picked for us because that's what we that's what we like. That's kind of what the internet does, right? I mean, if you constantly click on Instagram models, that's primarily what you're going to see on Instagram, right? If you always look and engage with political shit on there, that's always going to be fed to you, right? So when it comes to that social media aspect, it makes a lot of sense that that's what we're getting. We're not getting those serendipitous moments anymore. But I do think that the internet, search engines and stuff like that, they provide some serendipitous responses, especially if you just go and browse. And I don't know, have you ever gone down that rabbit hole of YouTube? Have you ever done that? Or just perused around on Google Maps and just looking at random places that I'll probably never visit? I do that all the time. It's kind of fun. You ever just go pop around on an island in the uh, South Pacific. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty amazing. So I do think the internet still provides that to a degree. And so does the author in this book. He says it's much more vast and it's easier to sit on the internet and randomly come across things than it is even in a library. Anyways, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Are new things coming into your life through the internet and social media? Or are you discovering new things less and less because of that narrow, tailored vision the algorithm has given you. Do you ever go out and look beyond what's being fed to you? You know what I mean? I don't know. Just uh, just interesting little thought I had there. For me, it really harkens back to us being consumed by our phones that I always talk about and not really living in the moments that are happening right here in front of us. You know, not to get too deep or philosophical or anything like that, but that's just kind of what I think. But either way, you know, ponder that and let me know. All right, let's move on here. So trust. I had a moment with my daughter a while back and I asked if she, if she trusted me. I think I was surprising her with a bite of food or something and she was a, a little hesitant to give in to my request of the game open your mouth and close your eyes and wait for a big surprise. You ever play that with your, with your kids? That's what I was trying to play. She eventually did, and I, I think I gave her a piece of cookie or something like that, but this whole thing, her hesitation kind of got me thinking, like, damn, like, does she trust me? I'm her dad. I would think she would 100% trust me. Or how do our kids trust us? Or how do they allow themselves, you know, to do that? How can we build trust with them and maybe make that a stronger bond? So that's kind of what I was focusing on here. I don't really think trust is something that's brought up as an issue or some primary parenting factor a whole lot. I mean, especially at this age, I don't think it's very deep. My kids are nine and six. They don't really think about it a lot. They don't trust that I'll get them from school or get them to school on time, or wake them up in the morning on time. I really don't think that those things are on their mind. I think in a certain aspect, that's just our routine. That's our schedule. I've never given them 
a reason to doubt my actions or, or my trust. I've never left them waiting in the pickup line at school. I've never let them get off the bus and me not be home. So I think a lot of it is just assumed by my kids that this is their normal. Now, if I gave them a reason, you know, then I would for sure be breaking that trust. Then there's going to be a problem. So I kind of just wanted to go through and talk about why it's important and then things we can do to build on that bond, right? So why is it important? Why is trust important? Aside from the obvious, right? I mean, we all know how important trust is with our spouses and with other people in our lives and and even with our kids. We know that there's a level of trust there. But aside from the obvious, it builds strong bonds. It does. It's like a muscle. The more you use it and the more you express it, the bigger and better it's going to get. When kids trust, they feel more open and comfortable when things get hard. When we have that strong bond of trust, they'll feel comfortable coming to us, that we aren't going to freak out. We're not going to get mad. We're not going to blame them for what's going on or what's happening or what they're telling us, right? They're going to trust that we're not going to react that way. Maybe we do sometimes, you know? It can also model healthy relationships to kids as well. Like I say all the time, they're seeing everything. They're watching. Their eyes are always watching. And when they see parents trusting each other, when they see me and my wife trusting each other, when they see us trusting the kids, that behavior will shape how they trust in their lives. And if that trust there is positive, as kids grow and transition from child to teen to adult, us as parents are able to put more trust into them, which is what we want, right? We want them to grow and expand and to get those responsibilities as they get older. And they want to have more freedoms as they grow up too. Of course they do. My nine-year-old wants to have more freedoms right now. We don't want to have that lack of trust though either. Always having to keep an eye on them. We can't trust them to do the right thing or trust that they won't do something that they shouldn't or not be able to leave them home by themselves when they're older or let them use the car because they're going to go hooning around and, and crash it or something. I don't know. So when the trust is down, the stress levels go up. But in turn, when trust is up, stress levels will, of course, be down. So how do we build this? What do we do? How do we kind of cultivate this to have that good bond? What are some actionable things that we can do to foster trust, to build it within our kids, right? Well, I found an article and uh, I'll link it in the description so you can check it out. But it's got seven actions that we can do to instill and build trust with our, with our family, with our kids. The first one is set examples as a parent. If we say we're going to do something, then that something must get done, okay? Follow through is one of the most important things in building trust. We need to be consistent and reliable. When kids can rely on our words and actions, it's going to reinforce trust and provide that sense of security within them. And if for some reason we can't follow through, then we need to explain why to our kids and not just brush that under the rug. Same thing with our spouse as well. We all know the kind of heat we get when we say we're going to do something or take care of something, and we don't, right? We get uh, in a little bit of hot water, don't we? And for us, we know what it's like to instill trust in someone. A coworker, perhaps. 
And they say, oh, yeah, I'll take care of this or I'll take care of that for you. And then down the road, come to find out they didn't do it. What's going to happen? Well, you're going to be frustrated, right? But then you're going to feel and you're going to know that you can't trust them to do things for you anymore. It's the same way that our kids are going to feel. The next one they mention here is don't break promises. And it kind of goes in line with setting examples as a parent. We should only make promises to anyone not to just kids, but to anyone that we are able to keep. We only want to make promises that we can keep. Yes, shit can come up. We can get busy with life. Sometimes we're juggling a lot of stuff as parents, school stuff and cooking and cleaning and dealing with work and dealing with other stresses in our lives. And if we promise to go for ice cream and what do you know, we ran out of time that day. Yeah, sometimes that's going to happen. And I'm sorry but it is. It's just, you know, and kids do on one hand. Yes, kids do need to understand that. Now, it may not be a big deal in our eyes, but then again, we're not four years old or seven or 11. And I think to kids, a promise is a promise. Hey, you you promised because we've instilled in them and, and taught them what the meaning promise is. What, the, what does that mean? So then when we break that, it's devastating, right? So instead of willy-nilly spouting the I promise all the time, maybe choose different words. Hey, if we have enough time, we have all these things to do today, but if we have enough time, let's go get ice cream and then let them know that it's dependent on other factors in the day. I think that would just be a little bit better way to do that. And yes, the ice cream situation, pretty insignificant, right? It's pretty minimal. But what if the promise was... I promise to come and watch your basketball game tonight and you drop the ball and you miss it. What is that child going to think when you miss something a little more pivotal like that? They're going to lose trust in you, aren't they? All right. Third one here is showing a mutual respect between child and adult. It sounds pretty simple. Kara Carrero, the author of this article, and I think it's on her website too, where I got this from. She states that while it's our job to teach respect, it's also our job to show respect to our kids as well as still being the parent in charge. She says when a child grows up respected, they're more apt to confide and trust in their parents. Makes sense. Respect fosters open and honest communication. And when we treat our kids with respect, they feel more comfortable sharing their experiences, their thoughts, and their concerns with us, which all build trust, right? Being respected builds a child's confidence and self-esteem as well. And feeling valued and respected helps them develop a positive self-image. That's all really important stuff. When we respect our kids, it also reinforces the child's belief in their own worth, which affects how much they trust our guidance and our opinions. So the, tr so the trust and respect thing kind of go hand in hand here. If I don't respect you, I probably won't trust you either. That's a pretty fair statement, right? I like to look back at the coworker model, my working days, and it's true. A coworker or a boss that showed no respect towards me, just as a person, I'm probably not going to trust you. I'm not going to respect you because you don't respect me, and I'm probably not going to trust you either. I'm not going to trust that you're going to have my best interests in mind. I'm going to assume that that person doesn't give a crap about me, and therefore I'm not going to trust them. So. That's just pretty simple, right? 
And the thing, same thing goes with our kids. If we don't show them respect, then they're not going to show us respect and or trust either. I think it's just kind of self-explanatory there, isn't it? All right, number four, being a good listener to your child. Pretty basic stuff here, like I always like to do, you know. Parents need to be good listeners and actually comprehend what our kids are telling us. Put the phone down, like I say, every single freaking week. Make some eye contact and show an actual interest in what your kid is telling you. Please, just try. This is a big way to build trust with them. And I know, I probably do it myself, but I see it all the time too. Parents just checked out. They're trying to multitask. They're doing the parent thing. They've got a hundred things on their mind. I get it. While their kids are sitting there rattling off this long-winded story about how a kid ate glue at school or how someone said something that wasn't nice to them. Yes, I get it. We've all struggled through these stories a hundred times, especially at dinner, and our kids won't eat their food. But I still think we need to show some respect and still be that good listener. Maybe even telling them, hey, let's pause your story. Let me finish what I have to do. And then we'll talk about your story in in 10 minutes when I'm done, when I'm available to really give you all my attention. I think that's a great way to do it. But also just put yourself in their shoes. If you're telling a story to someone and the other person's on their phone and they're not really listening, they're not acknowledging what you're telling them, it's going to get pretty frustrating, right? And I know, they're kids, right? It's pretty easy to brush it off as, ah, this isn't important or they don't notice. They're not going to notice me half paying attention, but they will. Okay, they will. All right, next, number five, help break down their difficulties into manageable steps and be supportive along the way. Letting our kids know that they can rely on us and we can help them through their challenges is a great way to build trust. Help them know that we are there for them and we can help them deal with these challenges one step at a time. Also encourage them and give them support no matter how small of an undertaking it is. I mean, don't go throw a huge circus party when they tie their own shoes, but you know what I mean. We can still be supportive in what they're doing. We've all seen our kids get frustrated over things, right? Schoolwork, projects, playing games, a sport even. And every time, what do we do? Or what should we do? We should help them or try to help them understand that they will get through it. Try to break it down for them. We will help them with the math homework. We will show you different ways to break down those problems so you can understand them. By the way, my daughter hates math. That's why this is an easy example for me. Or it could be even riding that bike with no training wheels. We're going to be there. Let them know that we're going to be there running right next to them to keep them upright and going down the, down the road. We're not going to let them fall. Or we're not going to let them fall too terribly anyways, right? By the way, I don't understand the whole... This is a huge divergence here, but I don't understand the whole strider bike thing. I don't get it. People say they're amazing. It's the bike with no pedals and the kids learn balance before pedaling. But I think they're just dumb. My kids learned the old-fashioned way. They pedaled with training wheels and then they moved on to balancing and pedaling. So I don't get it. It just, uh, they said, I said bikes and it just popped into my head. But anyways, all right. The last one I'm going to mention here is respecting boundaries. My boundaries as a parent as well as my kids' boundaries. These are personal limits or guidelines that define how we want to be treated and what we're comfortable with. 
I actually may do a show later diving into this topic a bit more about teaching boundaries with kids. I found an article and it seemed very interesting. I'm not going to get into it now, but look for that one in the future. But also giving them some responsibility and allowing them to have some autonomy will foster a sense of trust. This also involves acknowledging their preference and opinions, even if they're different from our own. I think that's kind of important. Let them have some choice. Let them have an opinion. They're not always going to think and like what we enjoy and what we like. I think this is a great way to mutually build trust. And sure, you know, all within reason, of course. I'm not going to just let my kids make every single choice on their own. That seems a little ridiculous. But for a simple example, I let my girls choose pretty much whatever they want to wear to school. As long as it's on par with what the weather is, I let them pick that out. I don't lay clothes out for them. I let them have that choice. I also ask them what they like packed in their lunches. A lot of times I'll pack lunches for them when they take to school because they don't eat the school lunch. And I'll say, hey, would you like this or that? And give them a few choices. And I think they enjoy that. They like having their voice kind of heard. Sometimes I ask their opinion on what we should even eat for dinner as a family or how something I'm working on looks. Hey, what do you think of this picture I'm drawing? What do you think of this render I'm doing? Just simple stuff, but I think it helps. Last thing I want to mention here, it's not really part of one of these things, but something I want to say is I think we should take out using that word maybe when we talk about doing stuff with our kids. I should have probably mentioned this up in the promises section where, where I talked about promises, but I think more often than not, it just sends the wrong signal. Kids hear maybe, and I think they automatically think yes. When in our parent heads, we're thinking no. But it's like a way to say something just to shut them up. It's something that we don't really want to do, so we say maybe... And then we're not committing to yes, so then we're not necessarily lying to our kids. You know, it just kind of gets a little dirty. And I think it's just like a scapegoat way for parents to be like, oh, well, maybe we'll go do that. Even though in our heads we're like, nah, we're not doing that shit. Another thing I want to mention, it's a funny story real quick about trust, is the trust fall. And this has been in my mind because my kids like to do this. Have you ever done that with your kids, the trust fall? Well, I told my girls about it a long time ago, and now they like to do it kind of a lot. Kennedy, my youngest, she'll say, Dad, trust fall. And I'm like supposed to catch her when she falls back at me. And I do, and it's fun. I've actually told her lately to do the trust fall on the bed so nobody gets hurt. But I just think it's kind of funny that she trusts me enough to catch her like that. It's where you just stand up stiff and then you fall back. And you're supposed to trust that the person behind you will catch you. Hopefully they announce before they just go fall, but uh, it's still kind of fun. Now if she would only trust me as much when I say, close your eyes and open your mouth and I'm going to give you a piece of candy. But that's when she hesitates. Yet she'll do a trust fall. I don't get it. Sorry my voice keeps changing, but every time I, you know, cut off the mic and I cough a little bit, it goes into a different freaking octave. So... Apologies if this episode is sounds awful, but... All right, that's about all I have for this episode, actually, of Stay at Home Dad's podcast. I don't know, something a little more actual to the point, you know? I try to give some decent advice on here, and I hope some of this helps. I imagine this trust thing will get much different as my kids age and 
when they get older and they want to go out with friends and they want to hang out with boys and oh my gosh, I am not ready for that. But yeah, that'll be a whole new chapter on trust right there for sure. Anyways, if you have any questions or comments for me on today's show or anything for that matter, please reach out to me on podbean.com or on Instagram at stayathomedads underscore podcast. And please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Also, if you could, I know it's the holiday season. It's a season of giving. Maybe you could uh, share this show with a friend or a stranger or a relative, anybody that you would feel would enjoy listening to it. I would appreciate that. Tell them it's on all the major streaming platforms. So if you do that, that'd be awesome. Big thumbs up. Once again, though, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you all next week.